Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. A lot of people choose to live in certain places based on the winters. If you love wearing big comfy sweaters and playing out in the snow, odds are you live in the Midwestern or Northeastern United States. If you would rather turn on your heat for a couple of days in the season and the occasional chilly rainy day, then you're probably loving the South. Regardless of the region, scientists have developed a method that can measure how severe the winter has been where you live. It's called the Accumulated Winter Season Severity Index. And I have the co-creator, Dr. Barb Mays Baustad, here with me today to discuss it. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, Barb, how are you? I'm great, Marshall. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, Dr. Baustad, but I'm going to call her Barb because we've known each other quite a while. So uh, we're colleagues. And so I, I hope she'll call me Marshall, which she just did. I, I got to ask you the question that I ask every single guest on Weather Geeks. How'd you get into meteorology? I think when you ask this question, you get a lot of people in one of two camps, either the big event that struck as a child and made them uh, pay more attention to the weather or a fear of weather as a child where they went to learn about it to alleviate the fear. And I fall into that second camp. I was afraid of thunderstorms. And uh, to help me alleviate it, my mom and my older sister took me to the library and started to get me books about the weather so that I could learn about it and stop crawling into bed with them at night. Um, And it worked. I learned that the safest room in the house is interior, so I started crawling into the hallway instead. Um, but that really sparked for me the, the love of wanting to learn more about weather. And it didn't take me long until I had checked out every book in the library about weather <laughs> at, repeatedly. And it, it continued from there. By first grade, I told my mom I wanted to be a meteorologist when I grew up. And that, that again, at least that aspect of knowing very early, uh, as you said, there are certainly different motivations for why we know. But in your case, you knew very early, as, as many of us in the field do. Let me give you some of her credentials before we move forward. She's a meteorologist and instructor with the National Weather Service, and she's been in that post since 2018. Prior to that, she worked as a meteorologist in the National Weather Service since 2002 in the Quad Cities and Omaha uh, forecast offices. She has a Ph.D. from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in natural resources and applied climatology. She also has a master's degree from Penn State University in meteorology and a bachelor's degree from Central Michigan University in meteorology and geography. As you heard me mention in the introduction, she's the co-creator of the Accumulated Winter Severity uh, Season Severity Index, which we're going to be discussing at length. She's also an active AMS member and is on the Applied Climatology Committee. And it's just a, I, you know, I want to just take this opportunity She's just one of my favorite colleagues in the field. She, if you if you are on Twitter, she's a, an excellent follow on Twitter. And I'm going to ask her when she speaks to give her Twitter address. She's very engaged. She knows her meteorology. She knows the realities of climate, and it's just someone that's willing to engage beyond our field. So I just want to congratulate you and thank you for what you do for our enterprise, Barb. Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot coming from you, Marshall, as somebody who's also standing up and representing our industry so, so well. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, there are folks like you who serve as role models to us of the ways to engage with different communities. Yeah, no, I, you do it well. And certainly I, I learned some things from you as well. Let's talk about your job as a, before we kind of get into all of the many things I want to talk to you about today. Tell us about your, your, your current career as a meteorology instructor for the National Weather Service. Where are you and what are you doing in that role? Oh, I'd love to talk about that. I am working in Norman, Oklahoma with the National Weather Service's Warning Decision Training Division. And it's our job to teach our uh, incoming meteorologists and also give refresher training to our more experienced meteorologists on the ins and outs of issuing all things warnings. That could be uh, severe thunderstorm and tornado warnings, winter storm warnings, flash flood warnings, that really high impact weather that we deal with in our forecast offices. Um, so my job will allow me to develop and give the recorded web modules that people have to take on their night shifts, uh, also to teach in person in the classroom when, when people come to us for our workshops. Very interesting. And in fact, I'm teaching a mesoscale and radar meteorology class right now at the University of Georgia. And I have some of my students in my radar class taking the online mod training modules on the dual polarization for the non-National Weather Service meteorologists. I don't know if that's out of your, your group there, but they certainly are quite useful in my mesoscale classes. I'm glad to hear that. Those are produced by us. And we put uh, the vast majority of our recorded modules on the web for anybody to access, and uh, they are widely available. Our workshops are reserved for our weather service employees, but this way we can get as much information out as possible to students who are coming up through their, their courses or folks who are in, for example, the private sector and want to keep up with our latest trends and changes. Yeah, I highly recommend those. I want to talk about your career prior to your current one. What did you do as a meteorologist in the National Weather Service office? I mean, were you a forecaster or a Sioux warning coordination meteorologist? What, what were you up to? I spent 13 years as a forecaster in the National Weather Service. That was three years at the Quad Cities and uh, 10 years at the Omaha office. Um, and in addition to forecasting the weather and water in those areas, um, everybody in a forecast office takes on a role we call a focal point, which means there are certain aspects of our job that we get to focus on and, and be a leader for in our offices. Uh, so an office may, for example, have a severe weather focal point or uh, AWIPS development focal point. I generally assumed the role of the climate focal point in the offices I worked in uh, because of my strong ties to our climate uh, program and my climate history and background. So I had the opportunity to, uh, in addition to doing all the forecasts that we do, also engage our partners to talk about climate outlooks and route impacts and the impacts of climate change in our areas, for example. Yeah, and you, you do a nice job with that. I, I don't know, think I knew that background on sort of that focal point that you just mentioned, but it certainly uh, makes sense. So you there is something interesting about you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, by the way, from the University of Georgia. I'm talking with Dr. Barb Mays Bausted from the National Weather Service. There is something interesting about your background compared to many people within the National Weather Service. You actually also have a Ph.D. Talk about your motivation for getting your doctorate and in, in that uh, it's not necessarily a required degree for many of the positions within the National Weather Service. I had a lot of layers of motivation for doing that Ph.D. I did it while I was working as a forecaster. And we do have some support written into our National Weather Service directives that allow us to take classes that will help us support the missions of the National Weather Service. And 
as my role in our climate programs increased, I felt like I had a deficit in, in knowledge. I had what I had learned on the job about climate, but I didn't have that, that rigorous academic background in it that I really thought I wanted in order to feel more credible in what I was doing. So I went back for the PhD to get that, that credibility of, um, I am not just a meteorologist, I am also a climatologist, and be able to share that within the Weather Service to help us elevate our profile of climate services. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I think you're touched on something that's very important as we talk about this idea of weather and weather forecasting and climate and climate change, because I often have said that a meteorologist is not necessarily an expert in climatology and vice versa for that matter. Um, they're related fields, obviously, but there's so much more to the climatology field than, than people uh, understand. And as someone also with degrees initially in just meteorology, the climate preparation is truncated. And I often say that because I think um, you raise an interesting point about perhaps uh, our level of preparation as meteorologists in sort of the broader area as a climate. Can you talk more about that? Oh, I'd love to. And I see you and I in the same category here where there are a few of us who have had that rigorous background in both. But as you alluded, they're not the same. They're a bit like different specializations in the medical profession. You start from the same anatomy in medicine. You start from basic biochemistry and, and human anatomy. But one person specializes to become an oncologist and another becomes a cardiologist. Now, they're both very smart in what they do. They both understand the body. But if you have heart trouble, you're not going to go to the oncologist. And if you have cancer, you certainly are going to go to the oncologist. Meteorology and climatology are very similar to that, where there's a lot of fundamental physics that and chemistry and earth processes that underlie both. But we go in slightly different directions as we specialize one or the other. And there are a few of us who have specialized in both and can bridge in those gaps so that we help uh, cross between weather and climate, I think, more effectively and speak both languages to help translate one to the other. And the reason I, I wanted to kind of linger there for a moment is because there there have been sort of sort of discourse and narratives within our broader community, because candidly, there are some meteorologists that can be a little skeptical on climate change, both in the TV world and even within the National Weather Service world, frankly, I think that has come around. I think there are always going to be pockets of that. But I, the data is suggesting, for example, that most broadcasters now are coming around on that. But, you know, the, they aren't the same. And I, I think it behooves us all as meteorologists. Uh, I know I've done it over the years to make sure we understand the aspects of, of climate that we didn't get in that one little climate class that we had in our meteorology curriculum there. There's so much more to climate in terms of paleoclimate, climate modeling, time series analysis analysis, physical climatology, urban climatology, climate uh, methods for observation. So I, I just wanted to linger on that point a little bit. I do want to shift now because I, I want to get to your accumulated winter season severity index. But before I do that, I, I noticed that most of your education and career has been in the Midwest. Do you like the winters in the places that you've lived or do you hate them? What, what, what is your take on the winters that you've lived as an adult so far? Well, um, I grew up in Michigan, and in all of the places I have lived since I grew up, I seem to have moved to gradually milder and milder climates to where in Oklahoma now I am awfully mild in my winter climatology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think I got a whole lot of winter growing up, and maybe it was enough to fill my cup for a while. I will say that now that I've moved to Oklahoma, I do miss that that potential to have that really good t toothy snowstorm and 
you know, really dig into winter. But I also, I like winter for about a month or a month and a half, and then I am over it and ready to be warmed up again. So uh, I, I like studying winter, but perhaps living in it, I've, I've had my, my fun. <laughs> Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And Georgia, can't even say my own state here. And I'm talking with my colleague, Dr. Barb Mays Baustead from the National Weather Service. And we're talking about a lot of things. I mean, the main reason we, we invited her on the show is to talk about how we measure the severity of winter and, and so forth. But there are just so many. She's got such a breadth of knowledge on so many things that I am not going to stay on that topic alone. You can trust me on that. But I do want to pivot there now. So there's this accumulated winter season severity index. First of all, tell us what it is and why you decided to de- uh, develop it in, in, in connection with your colleagues. The, uh, the accumulated winter season severity index, I'm going to call it Aussie for short, acronym AWSSI, is our way to quantify the severity of a winter. And the genesis of this came in my PhD program where I was studying a particular historical winter, and that would be the winter of 1880 to 1881 that was documented extensively in Laura Ingalls Wilder's book, The Long Winter. And I had come across enough evidence to suspect that it was a very severe, perhaps one of the most severe winters in the areas where it occurred since we t- uh, began to take modern white settler measurements, but I didn't have a way to put a number on that. And my advisors said, well, this would be a great thing to put into your dissertation. Um, My advisors at the University of Nebraska were doctors Martha Shulsky and Ken Hubbard, um, and both of them are very savvy in applied climatology. I, uh, I connected with Dr. Steve Hilberg, who had recently, at the time, recently retired from the Midwestern Regional Climate Center. And Steve Hilberg, for those who know him, will know that he loves winter. He, he desires snowfall. He would take the longest winter he could and be very happy about it. <laughs> uh, and I connected with him because he had already thought a little bit, too, about how do we quantify the severity of a winter. He and I put our heads together and put our maths together and put our skills together and created this index to measure uh, the severity of a winter by using temperature and snowfall data. So this is sort of the sort of beginnings of it. Now, from what I understand, and I've, I've taken a look at this index it is, it is composed of both meteorological factors, but also societal factors to things like snow removal, commerce, transportation. Talk about the marriage of the meteorology and the societal factors. When Steve and I originated this index, we wanted to, we wanted to keep it mathematically stable. In other words, we wanted to be able to document the severity of a winter from the 1800s compared to one in the mid 20th century compared to one now. So to us, it was important to keep it uh, tied to the data and then let that be an anchor point 
and let other industries or other sectors be able to come in and put their data up against it. So what goes into the index is all meteorology. It is maximum and minimum temperature, snowfall, and snow depth. And we also created a, a related index when snow data aren't available that we can calculate it based on temperature and precipitation. We then, uh, we encourage the users of the index to take their data sets, perhaps that might be bird migration patterns, for example, and compare it to the Aussie and see how the two vary. Is there a relationship? Is there a correlation between the two indices? Now, how do you, I mean, and you mentioned that there are various weather or meteorological sort of components of the, the index. How do you go about determining or weighting one versus the other? In, in other words, is temperature more important than snowfall or snow depth? Or are they equally weighted? Or how, how do you determine that? The, the system is set up to be, uh, I'm a sports person, right? I love sports. So we too. set it up like a score and every day we can accumulate a score based on hitting temperature thresholds and snowfall thresholds. We set it up so that one of those components is not likely to really strongly outweigh the other. Uh, in other words, if you have an extremely severe winter, both the temperature and snowfall likely had to be uh, uh, colder and snowier than normal. And if you had an extremely mild winter, those both had to be quite a bit more mild than normal. Um, now, climatologies, we learned through doing this that there are climatologies across the country that make that relationship between the snow contribution and temperature contribution change. So, for example, in the Great Lakes, the snow contribution is just higher on average than it is in the Central Plains, where the temperature contribution can be higher on average. But overall, we were aiming for balance. Yeah, that, I, I, that makes sense. And I, I, having been involved in the development of some indices and myself, I certainly understand the challenges there. Who is your target audience? Who, who is the index for? Uh, of course, like any good index developer, we would love to say everybody. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> um, we think that it's a publicly relatable index. It's like having the categories assigned to drought severity or even hurricane or tornado severity uh, that give you something as just a person who's experiencing a winter to say, oh, okay, this, this really was as severe as I thought it was. Or, you know what, in my head, I thought this was a, a pretty severe winter, but it turned out that it wasn't that severe. So maybe that's just because the last two winters before it were really mild. We do want the, our publics to be able to use this index, but we also recognize that there is a scientific use for it that goes beyond just public uh, perception of the severity of a winter. Um, some of the sectors we envisioned getting use out of it included the natural resources sector, and they do use it pretty extensively. Folks who are tracking bird migrations or tree growth patterns, for example. Uh, we have folks in transportation industries who look at it. We could envision even greater use by folks in, say, retail industries or shipping industries, those that are pretty weather sensitive, especially in the winter. Um, health also could be a, a great area for applying this. When we think about uh, warming winters, for example, um, one of our concerns is that some of the disease vectors aren't getting killed off. So there's really the possibility of comparing lack of winter severity to uh, vector-borne diseases. 
Yeah, that's, that's that's actually an interesting point, as I know the world is dealing with the coronavirus right now. And uh, as I understand it, there's some uh, linkage between sort of a certain temperature threshold, or at least I've heard this. I don't know how true it is and, and, and how sort of active the virus can be. So it just makes the point that uh, the lack of winter sort of introduces some interesting, uh, if you will, sort of health consequences for vector-borne disease or perhaps viruses like this. And so you're sort of in the camp that notes that there is a public health. Well, let me ask you this question before I go there. Um, are we seeing less severe winters or in terms of the, uh, in general, I mean, from a standpoint of the scientific literature and or your index? We did look at some trend analyses when we first set up the index and across the board, across the country, pretty much every site was seeing some kind of reduction in the temperature contribution of severity over time. In some places that was really strong, in some places it was much more slight, but it exists almost everywhere. Snowfall trends were a little bit less um, all one direction. There were certainly some places that are trending lower in their snowfalls, others that were stable and others that were trending upward. And that really does match our expectations of what we think could happen as our our world warms. Um, We generally think temperatures are warming across the country, different paces, but they are warming. And the impact on snowfall is not necessarily all in the same direction because precipitation patterns matter. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I, something that I've just anecdotally noticed, uh, you know, the last couple of years is whenever we actually have a cold outbreak or a blizzard or a winter storm, it's breaking news. And and, and we found in a report that was done for the National Academy of Sciences uh, several years ago that there are a, a, a reduction of sort of extreme cold events globally as we scour the, the scientific literature, which is consistent with what you also said about the, the temperature aspect of your index as well. So I I find it somewhat amusing when I see people sort of clamoring about it being cold in January or February. Well, duh, it's supposed to be. I mean, any any thoughts on that? You know, um, this is another study that came out of working with the Aussie, and um, it's a great example of exactly what you're saying. I was looking at uh, Detroit's data when this index was first created because they happened to be having a particularly severe winter. I think it was the winter of 2013 to 14. And uh, I got a lot of calls from media in, in, in Michigan and Wisconsin wanting to know, is this, nor, you know, is this normal and we've just forgotten about it or is it unusual? You know, how severe is this winter? And when I looked back through the Aussie data, what I found is the winter of 2013 to 14 was quite severe. It was one of the more severe in Detroit and some other sites around the Great Lakes area. But you had to go back over a generation to get a comparably severe winter, and that would have been the late 1970s. From there, you had to go back almost a generation to get to some other severe winters. But by the time you get back into the early parts of the record, say in the late 1800s to early 1900s, those types of winters were happening once every five years or once you know per decade. So what used to be quite common in the Great Lakes is now something that happens maybe once a generation at best. So generationally, we forget how to live with it. That's a great point. And it just stimulated a question because I know, you know, I I do work in hurricanes and flooding. That's kind of my sort of expertise, rainfall, hydrometeorological extremes. And we use these things called recurrence intervals or return intervals. Uh, Are there are are we at a point now or maybe it already exists where uh, we can start to look at sort of recurrence intervals or return intervals for particularly cold outbreaks or cold seasons or winters? based on something like your index? 
I'm certain that we could. That would be a great project for somebody to to take up. Yeah, I think that would be a great master's project because, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of, you know, set some type of threshold cold temperature, I guess, based on your index or some other data and sort of see, are, are, are we seeing a change in those recurrence or return? Of, now, of course, it requires a, a a long record of data and those are always challenges. But I suspect for something like winter uh, temperatures, that would actually be in some ways easier than, say, hurricanes to some degree. We've got pretty good data across the country going back into the 19th century. When we first created this index, we specifically selected sites that had a long period of record with as few gaps as possible so that we could have that long period of comparison. And um, there are, it, the farther back you go, of course, the, the harder it is to find them. But if you're looking from about the 1880s to the present, there are dozens of sites that could potentially be analyzed. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with the National Weather Service's Dr. Barb Mays Bowstead about severe weather, uh, winter weather, I should say, her winter weather index, and many, many other things that I want to get to with her. But before I shift gears, are there any tweaks or changes you see now that you've had a few years with the index? Um. I, I wish there was a way for us to include freezing rain data in the index because we don't keep freezing rain records um, across the country. We generally take note of and maybe put out a paper uh, once in a while of climatologies, but there's not one database out there that's continually updated for freezing rain. And that might be some of the highest impact of all. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate that we lose out on the chance to include that in the index, but we haven't solved that problem of how to find that data and find a, a good enough database where we could incorporate it. Well, I'm, I'm familiar with the SPIA index. Uh, I, I don't know if, what, what can you, are you familiar with that? I, I thought it dealt with freezing rain or ice accumulation. Uh, we are familiar with it to some extent, but what we would need is something that's available daily at every site across oh, the I country. See. Oh, I see. And archived and recorded so that it could be pulled back up and used again and yeah, that makes sense. You know, the kind of stuff that gets stored off at NCEI and their archives. I am going to completely shift gears now because I think we've done the index justice. And by, before we leave it completely, where can people go and find it or see it for themselves on, online or on social media? The index is housed on the website for the Midwestern Regional Climate Center. So if you Google MRCC AWSSI, uh, you will find that index on their website. And before I forget this, as we get into other interesting things, Barb, tell us where people can follow you on social media as well, because you're a great follow. I am on Twitter as at WindBarb, W-I-N-D-B-A-R-B. And I tweet about weather, climate, also sports, history, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and a few other random topics. That, that, exactly. I highly recommend you to go follow her right now if you can. I, at this point, I, I, I'm just going to sort of take sort of 
podcast host privileges here and and go in some other areas because I know you just have so many thoughts on all kinds of things. Um, Barbara, in terms of warning the public about severe weather, I know you and I, have we kind of talk about this all the time in our respective corners and on social media. What are the biggest things that concern you about how we warn about weather and, and, and today and in terms of meteorology or even the social meteorology or societal aspects? I, uh, I think I can probably join every meteorologist out there that says, I wish there was a way that every person would get our warnings, act on them, and have the right places to go for shelter that will help protect their lives. And I think the challenges that we are facing in- include that um, it is probably not possible for all three of those to happen with every human impacted by severe weather. Um, which means that we have to figure out how to do the best we can. And we also uh, have to figure out as meteorologists and the humans in this process, um, how to, how to know when we've done everything we can. And sometimes there are just reasons that people can't react like we want them to, or like we wish they could. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I even saw something recently, excuse me, about a new sort of level of warning for winter storms. I, I, I think Paul, I don't remember if it was Paul Douglas or someone I saw writing about a new prototype National Weather Service sort of level of categories in the same way that we use for severe weather, for winter weather. Is, is, are you familiar with that? I, I, I didn't dig into it deeply, but I know I saw it somewhere recently. I think what you're talking about is the winter storm severity index, yes. not to be confused yeah. with the that, that, that is correct. <laughs> that, that is correct. And uh, that has been an experimental product with the National Weather Service for a few years now that um, we are attempting to take not just the meteorological conditions we expect, but uh, gauge their potential impact based on where they fall, the times that they might be falling, for example, and uh, provide that information to our partners, our core partners like the emergency managers Uh, to help them better anticipate not just that two inches of snow could fall, but that two inches of snow could fall during rush hour on Friday when people are trying to get home maybe more urgently. And uh, to help them then prepare for the kinds of impacts they may face with winter weather. So this this is very consistent then, it sounds like, with what I'm seeing across the National Weather Service with this move towards impact-based forecasting and decision support uh, as a part of, I guess, the overall uh, weather-ready nation effort that actually Louis Uccellini has talked about on this very show. So um, are there other areas where people are going to notice sort of more impact-based uh, uh, decisions? and and warning uh, communications? I I am most familiar with the program areas that I work with, which would be severe weather, flash flood, and um, winter. So within the scope of those, uh, flash flood is another one where we have made recent moves to focus more on impact-based warnings. Um, Our flash flood warning program is changing across the country this year to give us levels a little bit like we have in the tornado warnings where we have a baseline flash flood warning that says, you know, there's trouble out there. And if you go looking for it, you might find it. Then we have the considerable flash flood warnings, which are, you know what, trouble is starting to get out there and find people. And then saving the flash flood emergencies, the catastrophic, you know, high impact events to say trouble is looking for you and you need to get out of its way now. 
Yeah, that that's a good point. Uh, talking with Dr. Barb uh, Mays Bowstead from the National Weather Service about a lot of things right now. I'm just going going all over because I know she's flexible and dexterous enough to kind of go with me on these topics because I see her talking about them. I want to shift to climate change right now. You're very vocal in your sort of defense of climate science and a lot of the sort of misinformation that you see. What do you see as the biggest challenge in communicating about climate change and sort of what's going on there and even about perhaps connectivity to current weather? Oh, that's a good question. And I'm going to take it in a couple of directions. Um, In addition to the things I've taught in severe weather, I've had the opportunity to teach within the weather service about climate change for probably about 15 years now. And how we teach climate change is evolving through the whole 15 years. But in the last few years, we have evolved a lot more rapidly where uh, in the past, we really had to go sort of line by line. This is climate change. You know, yes, the changes are happening. Here's what they look like. Yes, humans are a factor. In fact, the leading factor in those changes. And here's how we know. Anymore, when I'm teaching climate change and starting from that structure, um, those who are taking my classes are, are kind of going, yeah, 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 we get this, but tell me what to do now. So what I think is happening is Um, There are always going to be in the Yale Six Americas, Yale Center for Climate Change Communication has developed the Six Americas structure of uh, folks who understand and are are very concerned about climate change to um, folks who you could give them every shred of evidence and tell them how literally it will hurt them physically or hurt their pocketbook and they still are never going to change their mind. Well, that group that's so dug in that they're never going to change their mind is only about 10% of the population which means 90% of people are listening. When I talk about climate change, 90% of people are thinking about it and and at least considering some kind of change to their action. So while those 10% can be really vocal, I remember that I'm talking to 90% who who really do wanna hear and know what to do next. So what I'm getting at in this long-winded answer is, um, I think the next step in our our, our climate change sort of communication strategies and our teaching strategies is we need to start talking about uh, the and what. How do we answer that question, for example, when we get a, a high-impact weather event like a tornado outbreak or a couple of big hurricanes and uh, people start asking, is this climate change? Yeah, I think that's um, right. I, I, agree I, I agree with you there. Yeah, becoming more versed in how to answer questions like that and becoming a little more versed in um, the science, uh, the scientific things that we know we can do uh, to either adapt to or mitigate climate change. Yeah, I, I've been getting a little frustrated with a lot of the reporting that just reports. I know I, and I get I'm a little sort of I, it's unfair, but I, I get frustrated with I, when I see just the story after story. Oh, it was the warmest January on record. It was the warmest ge- February on record. It was the warmest year on record. I mean, that that's not breaking news anymore. And in fact, it's almost in the sort of same mode of having to continue to sort of prove that climate is changing. I think we are beyond that. We know it is. I, I'd, I'd like to see the reporting focus a little more on the so what, as you talk about and sort of the here and now and so forth. So uh, I want to kind of sort of this last uh, sort of gasp of questions here. I want to circle back to you and your personal research or work on either the the index or other things that you're doing, what are the short-term and long-term goals for you uh, as a professional and for your index and product? 
I think you read me well that I have a lot of interests in a lot of varying places. Um, one thing I'm working on here in Warning Decision Training Division is to help increase our understanding of the human factors in the warning process. Everything from our physical health while we're working high impact operations and how some of our most common behaviors of working the, those high impact events can be detrimental to our ability to work them. So things like I'm going to work for 12 hours, I'm going to sit at the desk for eight hours at a time, and I'm not going to eat, and I'm only going to drink caffeinated beverages, but I'm not going to get up to use the bathroom. You know, these behaviors are collectively unhealthy and affect our ability to cognitively process what we're trying to do. Uh, so in that, you know, I'm going to be the hero and self-sacrifice everything. We're forgetting that we're actually doing a disservice to our public and our coworkers if we go too far down that path. So we're working hard to address that human side. Uh, that's one project. Uh, and another project that's kind of related in the uh, thinking about how we think about weather is going a little bit old school and talking about doing hand analysis when we are <laughs> yes. trying to forecast the near-term weather. I know you're, this I know is you're, a big this thing is a for big you, thing so thing talk, about, you this, talk yes. about this. Yeah. Well, what we have learned through research, and again, based in you know cognitive science and other sciences, is that hand-to-brain pathway helps us process what we're doing. So as meteorologists on a forecast shift, we might look at dozens of maps just you know, flying by our eyes. Uh, every model and all of the different layers of that model and all of the time steps and you know, there are literally dozens to hundreds of images. So if we think we can look at a screen and look at that initial conditions one where it's supposed to be the analysis of right now, and remember that an hour later, we're kind of fooling ourselves. Um, the way to get that to really encode in your brain is to process it by hand. And if we're thinking about in the weather service, where can we add our value as a meteorologist? You know, we're moving more toward blended forecasting where uh, we're given a sort of initial set of a model-based blend to help us start our forecast process. Where do we add value to that? Well, we add value in the nearer term, the next, say, 24 to 36 hours, and we add it by our ability as meteorologists to interpret what's going on, not just read it off the screen. So I really see hand analysis as a fundamental part of that process to help us understand not just the synoptic environment, but that, that really near mesoscale environment and even microscale environment in some cases to help us better understand what can happen in our weather in the next 6, 12, 24 hours. This has been such an awesome conversation. I, I hate for it to end, but we have to. But before I do that, it's that time of the week. It's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Matthew Mall. He is a high school science teacher in Massachusetts. And based on his location, it's no surprise that wintertime nor'easters are his favorite type of weather. In the vein of loving things that spin, Matthew's most memorable weather event was Hurricane Gloria in 1985. Never stop learning, Matthew, and thanks for being a true weather geek. If you know someone that is deserving of the candidacy for Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages on Twitter and Facebook. Barb, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, it's been awesome. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and thank you for continuing to listen to us, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Yeah.